All right, tonight we'll be in 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2. Think back with me to the Garden of Eden. Okay, how did Satan tempt Eve to commit the very first sin? Did he take her and force her up against the tree and say, Take this fruit, eat it, you must take it. Because God is evil and I am good. Is that how he tempted Satan or he tempted Eve to to take that fruit? No, he, he usually does it subtly, doesn't he? He takes truth and he mixes it with just a little bit of doubt, a little bit of error, and then when that starts to creep in the mind, we find that that uh, Eve saw this fruit and then she desired it and she took it. And so Satan is often very subtle. He takes truth that, that we have from God that is real truth. And he uses mostly truth, but he mixes it with a little bit of error. And John is warning against that in this passage. And if we're not careful, then we can have some major spiritual damage in our, in our lives as Christians. And although we should be warned by the attacks of Satan, we do not have to fear because, as we'll see tonight, the Holy Spirit guards and guides believers from those who are trying to, de- to deceive them. Let's begin reading in 1 John chapter 2, with verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were really not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out, so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. But you, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which we which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him." So we see in this passage that the Holy Spirit guards and guides believers from those who are trying to deceive them. John gives us both a warning and assurance. He says that the existence of Antichrist and those trying to deceive Christians is alarming, but he also says that we should have confidence because of the resources that we find in Christ and especially in the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
So we'll, th we'll see three main things. First, we'll see the attack of the enemy. And then we'll see what our defense is against the enemy. And then finally, we'll see the retreat of the enemy when we use those defenses. So first, the attack of the enemy. Look at verses 22 and 23, and we see this enemy described. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. This is the first time that the word Antichrist is used in the Bible. And in fact, this is, John is the only one that uses this term, Antichrist. But other, um, other writers talk of this, this person. In fact, um, we know from Paul's writings that he calls, him, um, he calls him the man of lawlessness, and John in Revelation calls him the beast. But this is the first time that he uses this term. And as you know, anti simply means what? Against, right? So he is against Christ. This person sets him out up he sets himself up against Christ. And, and when we think of the Antichrist, we think of the final world ruler who is energized by Satan himself and who will bring all of the world that is left at that time into one single world order and will be in, in complete opposite, opposition to the true Christ. But John, when he's referring to Antichrist here, he's being a little bit more broad, isn't he? Because he says there, that uh, verse 18 <clears throat> children it is the last hour and as you heard that antichrist is coming even now many antichrists have appeared so he's saying even among your churches that he's writing to remember he's writing to the churches in asia minor and he's saying even among your churches antichrists have come they have been in your midst they have been trying to deceive you notice how this this person is described first we as we just read he is one of many verse 18 but not only that he um, he left the the group of believers in verse verse 19 because he was really not one of them it says in verse 19 they went out from us speaking of the antichrist but they were not really of us for if they had been of us they would have remained with us so he's a defector of the faith he's a person who comes in stirs up trouble, and then leaves. Not only that, he's also a denier. Verse 22, he's a denier of Jesus Christ. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So he denies both the Father and the Son. So obviously this is not a person, this is not a being that is against or that is with God, that is not the person that's been energized by the Holy Spirit in any way. Rather, he is energized by Satan himself. Turn back to chapter 4, and I'll show you another reference that John has to the same person, the same type of people, the ones who are um, against God. Chapter 4 of 1 John Verse 2, it says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Okay, so that's speaking of Jesus' incarnation, right? His, his coming down from heaven and becoming human. Now verse 3, 
And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. So John says, those who are with Christ, those who are on God's side, believe that Jesus came in human flesh. You realize that every foreign religion rejects this truth. And that is exactly what John is saying. He's saying people do not believe that God himself came down in human flesh. And these, these defectors, these people who deny Jesus Christ, deny God himself, they do it because they deny the incarnation. They don't believe that Jesus really came in the flesh. Turn to 2 John. 2 John chapter 1. There is only one chapter in Second John, but, but I like to call it chapter 1 because it doesn't make sense to me that there's no chapters. Okay, Second John chapter 1, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do, who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver, and notice, the Antichrist. Who is it? that John keeps referring to as being this antichrist, this person who is against God. It is the one who, verse 7, has gone out into the world and does not acknowledge that Jesus has come in the flesh. He's a deceiver. He doesn't understand the truth about God. But not only is he a liar in that he or a deceiver in, in that the way that he understands, a denier of the facts, but he's also a liar. And that's found at the end of verse 7 here. It says, uh, this is the deceiver. So he, he denies it for himself that, yet I don't, I don't believe that Jesus came in the flesh. But not only that, then he passes it on to other people. This is the Antichrist. A person who rejects it for himself and then passes it on to other people and tries to get them to believe it. Turn back to... First, this is a person that's being used by the devil, right? And and obviously, since Satan does not know the time in which Christ is coming, he has to set up all these antichrists over time, even during John's day. Turn back to First John chapter two. First John chapter 2, and you'll see that this person is not only a denier, but he's also a liar. Verse 22 says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. You see, these are the people, these people who are against God, who are opposed to what God is trying to do. These are the people that are trying to deceive believers. They are trying to get them to pull away from their closeness to God. They're trying to get them to doubt Him just a little. Like I said, with regard to the, the Garden of Eden, just a little bit of doubt. Mix it in there with, with some truth, and then uh, next thing you know, you're, you're involved in sin. And we find in verse 23 that this person, this Antichrist, has an indictment on him. Verse 23 says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who de- I'm sorry, that's verse 22. Verse 23 says, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. 
If he denies the Son, he does not have the Father. There are lots of people that believe, that say they believe in God. But Jesus, throughout his ministry, said, Listen, if you don't believe in me, you don't believe in the Father. You have to believe in me. And that is the difference between true and living faith, believing in Jesus Christ, and false and dead faith, not believing in Jesus Christ. You can say all you want about your love and your, and your belief in God, but if you don't believe in Jesus Christ and what he did, then you don't believe in God. And so this, this person, this Antichrist, is obviously not a believer. And so we think, okay, well, this is the Antichrist. This is pretty obvious. I think we'd be able to tell what he looks like. If he ever came into our church, we'd know. I mean, it'd be pretty easy to tell. But the reason that John is describing this person in such detail is because this, this Antichrist is, is very deceptive. That's the nature of deception. It it uh, gets you to believe something that seems like truth, but it's mixed with a hint of error or a hint of doubt. And then before you know it, you're, you're rejecting the truth of God altogether. And so while we think it may be easy to detect these uh, sorts of people, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll show you that it's not very easy because Satan has made a living with this kind of deception. He has figured out how this works. He knows exactly which buttons to push in believers. Look at chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 13. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, For such men are false prophets, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as the angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Paul's warning here against these false teachers. And he's saying, you know, when they come in among you, they actually look like apostles. Now, how could a false teacher look like an apostle to a group of believers, people who know better? Is it because they dress a certain way? Is it because they act a certain way? Maybe it includes those things. But I would suggest to you that even in their teaching, much of what they have to say is truth. But they'll, they'll get you on a little bit of doubt, a little bit of error that seems like, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. Why are we arguing over this small issue? God really doesn't care. He just wants us all to get along. But if you remember when Jesus was being tempted, Satan, he didn't come out and say that God is evil and that you need to disobey him. Satan usually does not work in that way. He uses deception, doesn't he? And so the first temptation that we have with Satan in the wilderness was to have Jesus do something that was actually good. What did he tell him to do? Take this stone and do what? Throw it at somebody to kill him? No. Turn it into bread. Now, at that point in, in Jesus' life, don't you think after being in the wilderness for 40 days, starving, 
Don't you think that was a good thing to have bread? Sure, it was a good thing. I mean, that's something that he could have used to, to continue his sustenance, continue his life. But, do you know why it wasn't a good thing? Because it wasn't in the timing of his father. And so Jesus said, Do you realize that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? He was saying that, you know, there's something that's more important than food to me. And that is the word of God itself. And so Satan deceives with something that seems like it's good. Bread, when you're hungry. We would think if Jesus were, if, we, if he did that, we wouldn't really think he, he committed any sin. But what we don't understand is that it was not God's timing. It was not God's timing for him to eat. God wanted him to go through this, this trial so that he could be tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. The second temptation was just as deceptive, maybe even more so, because Satan actually uses Scripture to try to get Jesus to do something that he should not have. He says, as it is written, God will command his angels concerning you. That's Satan talking. He's using Scripture. Words that actually came from God, and he's basically saying, why don't you jump off of this mountain? I mean, God can protect you, right? He's got his angels in charge over you. Is that not true? Of course it was true, but Jesus' response was, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, just because God has the power to do something does not mean that we should test him. Hey, God can save me if I go the wrong way on the freeway, so... So I'll just give it a try. Well, it's true that he could save us. God is a great God. He, he works great wonders. He is in control over everything. But we should never presume upon God's grace. We should never think, hey, God's in control, so I'll just, I'll just do whatever. It doesn't matter how I live my life. I'll be foolish. And Jesus recognized that and responded with Scripture that was used in the proper context. And then the third temptation, Satan tested Jesus' desires. He said, would you like to be king over the whole world? A bad thing in itself? I mean, that's ultimately what Jesus came to do, what he originally came to do when he came to earth. He came to set up his kingdom. But as we know from John chapter 1 that when he came to his own his own did not receive him and so as a result Jesus decided to withhold his kingdom until he comes back at the end of the tribulation and that's when he's going to set up his kingdom so what Satan was offering to Jesus Christ was a good thing set up your kingdom now I'll let you do it but the timing was again wrong and Obviously, the, the way in which he would receive that kingdom was how? He had to bow down and worship the devil. So that was pretty explicit. Obviously, Jesus' response was, You shall worship the Lord your God only and serve him, like we read tonight from Deuteronomy. So for believers, Satan and his deceivers are constantly attacking. And their strategy is to tear down your love and your honor for God. 
the honor that you give to God. They're, they're trying to attack you. That is what Satan is about doing. So he sends them into our churches and into our workplaces. And he wants to take the truth and twist it just ever so slightly. But we should be warned because they often, these type of people often come in the name of love. You know these type of people? They say, you know, I don't know why you guys get so hung up over such a small issue. Why don't we just include everybody? Why does it matter that you're whichever denomination and they're whichever denomination? Let's just all get together. But I, I would suggest to you that that type of language has the hiss of the serpent in it. And we must be warned. Because, you know, we think, well, you know, this truth really doesn't matter. Why do people get so bent out of shape over this, these things? But the way that I show love to a person is not by ignoring differences. The way that I show love to a person is by upholding the truth of God. It would be the equivalent of my son coming home from school and saying, you know, there's a couple kids at school that have been getting alcohol from their parents. And, you know, I'd like to try that. I think that would be a good idea. And so I say to him, son, you know, um, I love you very much. And because of that, well, before I say that, I, I disagree with you. I don't think you should have any alcohol, especially at your age. And it may not be the best thing for your life. But I do love you. And because I love you, I will ignore those differences that we have among ourselves. Between us. I'll ignore those. You know why? Because I love you so much. And in fact, because I love you so much, I'm going to buy the alcohol for you and give it to you. So you can have it as much as you want. Is that real love for my son? When I'm giving him something that is potentially or is dangerous to his health and well-being. That is the, the nature of truth. We must uphold it. Now, there are some things that we get so caught up in that really are not explicit in scripture so what i'm talking about when i say that we should not reject truth or that we should be careful about upholding truth what i'm talking about are is those truths that are explicitly and in many cases implicitly true are obvious in the scriptures things that are stated in command forms things that are clear from the new testament from our understanding. And so our problem tends to be is that we don't want to study it out for ourselves. And so as a result, we just say, let's just everybody, you know, I don't really understand how to confront you on this. I don't really understand our differences, so let's just all agree. But it is, it is our job to understand and uphold the truth. That is what John is saying, because there are antichrists. There are people who are coming in our midst who are trying to deceive us. He's saying to these people, and so you better be warned. Because they are dangerous, and they will attack. And 
the primary way in which we do this, because it seems like a daunting thing, there are so many issues, there's so many... Just start by simply obeying God's commands. Many times it just comes down to that. We have what God has said. We've known it because we've been taught it, much of a, much, many of us for our whole lives, but we tend to reject it. We tend to ignore it because it's either difficult or I don't really want to suffer that sort of persecution with my coworker. And so we, we do need to uphold the truth in every area. And I would also suggest that Satan is constantly at work to tear down your desire, your personal desire to serve God. And he often does it very subtly. Now, have you ever had the desire to completely give up church and everything you know about the scriptures and stand out front of our church with a picket sign saying that Baptists are evil and that... Uh, we saw a sign on the way home from work. Satan loves such and such church. Or Satan hates such and such church. So come to our church. Because Satan hates us so much. But what if you stood out front of our church and said, Satan loves Ambassador Baptist Church. I mean, none of us really have that temptation, do we? We don't really want to reject everything that we know about Scripture and about the truth. This is how Satan often tempts us, though. He allures us with the things of this world, as we saw last week. Instead of, instead of asking us to boycott churches altogether or, or completely give up the scriptures, he says, you know, is going to church really that important? Do you really need all that Bible? I mean, do you really have to look like a holy ruler to all your co-workers? Wouldn't your time be better spent doing whatever? Couldn't you serve God better if you were away from church than with them? Or with regard to reading the scriptures, is it really that important? I mean, you've been to church several times this week. Do you really need more Bible? I mean, rest is important and you need to do well at your job. And if you want to do well at your job, you have to have good rest. And you really shouldn't be involved in the church and spending time, your personal time, reading the scripture. And so the most dangerous attack that Satan has on us is really the most subtle one, isn't it? It's where he takes God out of first place and he moves him down in our priority system. And sometimes he does it without us even knowing. We think that we are still having a good relationship with God, and yet we've, with our lifestyle and with our beliefs, have really moved him out of first place, while at the same time we're telling everybody that we're okay. That is the, the hiss of the serpent. That is the danger of Satan and his deceivers. So we must be careful that he does not attack because he is ready um, to pounce on us. And this is the way the deception works. It's often subtle. And so if we don't watch ourselves, we, we will be deceived. So what is our defense against this type of attack? Turn back to 1 John chapter 2. What is our defense against the enemy? 
There are two defenses that we, we have here in this passage. The first one is the weapon of the Holy Spirit. We find that in verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. We have an anointing from the Holy One, but, but it's not really just from the, from the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 27. It actually is the Holy Spirit. As for you, the anointing which you received from Him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has, it has taught you, you abide in Him. Notice, it's not something that just comes from the Holy Spirit. It's not a gift that says, here, I hope this works for you. No, it's actually the Holy Spirit working within us, abiding in us to combat the wiles of the devil. And in verse 27, we see that the Holy Spirit teaches us about all things. It says, it, um, And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but His anointing teaches you about all things. Now, this is not obviously a comprehensive human knowledge. Now we know everything when we have the Holy Spirit. Obviously not. This is referring to a knowledge of spiritual truth. Remember, during, during this time, the opposition of these churches were, um, were saying that they didn't really have, these people in the church did not really have a genuine knowledge of, of God. They needed to have some deeper um, understanding of God. And John said, no, I've already taught you about these things. You should understand them. You have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. And so don't be discouraged because you have God himself living in you. And the same thing is true for us. We have God himself living within us. And so we see um, the result of the anointing. What is it that the, the anointing of the Spirit does for us? Well, we, we see in verse 27 that it, it teaches us. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So, obviously, that's the thing that's repeated over and over in that verse, that his anointing teaches us. It gives us discernment. It causes us to be able to understand the difference between truth and error. That's one of, one of the benefits of having the Holy Spirit within us through uh, the teaching that he gives. This is what I would call, or what many people call, individual priesthood. And, and that's why he says, you have no need for anyone to teach you. Now, when we read that, we think, oh, great, we don't have to sit under, under any teachers anymore. This is great. I have the Holy Spirit. I can just learn from him. But obviously that, that is not the case because John is would be basically saying, listen to me because I'm teaching you something right now. You don't need to listen to me because you don't need a teacher. I mean, that's kind of counter-intuitive, counter, uh, so that doesn't really make sense. And, and he would know from Paul's teaching, Ephesians chapter 4, since John was the last apostle, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, that he gave God gave some pastors and teachers for, to do the work of the, or to equip saints to do the work of the ministry. So obviously there is a need for teaching. But 
in their time, there was this suggestion that they needed this higher form of knowledge and that they needed some greater, deeper understanding of the scriptures um, in a way that was more philosophical in nature rather than scriptural. And his point was they didn't need anything besides the Spirit of God working through the scriptures. Now, now I just gave it away, but how, how is it that the Holy Spirit works? It's not through little whispers when we're all alone, when we're quiet, when we empty our minds. It's not through visions that we have at night or dreams. It's through the Word of God. And this is the second weapon that John says that we have. Look at verse 21. The weapon that we can use to defend ourselves against the enemy. Verse 21 says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. And then verse 24 says, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. And if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. So what is it that he's referring to in verse 24 that abided in them since the beginning? Well, he says, it was that word which you have heard. And that word which you have heard that has abided since the beginning is the word of God. And if we were to go back to chapter 1 and verse 1, 1 through 4, we'd find that that is the word which abides in you. It's the word which John had told them about and that they should understand. The word that he had seen firsthand in the person of Jesus Christ and now was being passed on to these believers. And he said, I proclaimed it to you. And so... Because of that word that abides in them, we find that they can have both assurance of salvation, the second half of verse 24, and also eternal life. Those who have the, the word of God in them, look at verse 24. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you or remains, in other words, you also will abide in the Son and the Father. This is assurance of salvation. But not only that, we also have assurance of our eternal life. Verse 25, this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. This was a promise that John had heard Jesus uh, say in person. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. His promise here in verse 25 is, is a little bit redundant, but I think he's doing it in order to make the point. He's basically saying, this is the promise that Jesus himself promised. And he's, he's repeating himself in order to emphasize what he's trying to say. This is a promise not coming from me. It's not coming from some people from a long time ago. This is coming from God himself in the form of Jesus Christ, his son. And I witnessed, this, witnessed him telling us that promise. So those are our weapons. That is how we defend ourselves against Satan's subtle attack. We use both the, the power of the Spirit as he works through the ministry of the Word. And I would suggest to you that the Spirit primarily works through the ministry of the Word. We should not look for the Spirit's work apart from the Word. Okay, We should not look for the Spirit to, to tell us something that is 
against the word. Doesn't it make sense that God himself would be using his word to speak to believers? He would not be using some... Now, obviously in the New Testament times, we had the Spirit working, in a sense, apart from the word. Meaning, he would give visions and he would allow miracles to be performed uh, through him. Through, through the apostles and, and so on. But he doesn't do that anymore. Those miracles have ceased. So the way in which we should expect the Spirit to work in us is not by giving us a fuzzy thought or giving us a, 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 a great idea about something. It's as he reminds us about what we've learned through the Scriptures. The Spirit works through the Word. And so the last thing that we need to look at here in this passage is the retreat of the enemy. Once we defend ourselves against this enemy, we see that they actually leave us. Verse 18 says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were really not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. John says that this is the last hour. Even during his day, he recognized it as being the latter days, didn't he? And we think, how, how silly is that? Why would they... Well, if you remember, Jesus Christ himself was saying that after he died, that was basically, they needed to get ready for his return. And the disciples thought that Jesus meant during their lifetime. And so the time basically between Jesus' first and second coming is what I would call, or what John is referring to here, as the last hour, the latter days. The time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And it began even during the time of John, who had witnessed Jesus' death. So it could happen at any time. And the proof that it, it can happen at any time is that Satan is, is um, participating, is, is practicing his, his system that is against God. He is setting up his system that is against God. And we find those, that system personified in these people, these antichrists. And so that's how we know that it is the last hour. Because Satan is setting up his final world rule. But in case you think, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to start packing up and um, get my white robe on and move to the top of some hill so I can be closer to Jesus' return. Obviously, John was thinking the same thing. So what I'm not suggesting is that we should not be ready, but we shouldn't be foolish in, in the way that we think about the Lord's coming. He can come at any time, and we should be ready. We, we, it's better to be ready than not to be. But, but obviously, um, Jesus has been, his, his return has been imminent for a long time. And there are many antichrists that John speaks of, and these are these false teachers that we had talked about. And these antichrists are still coming. We could say that an Antichrist, although we, when we think of it, we think of this final world ruler. An Antichrist broadly is just someone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Remember the description of this person. He's a, he's a denier of the truth and he's a liar. 
And so broadly speaking, anyone who sets himself up in opposition against God and his truth and his people is an antichrist. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from food, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 5, Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will mislead many. We've heard about these sorts of people that, that set up their own little religions and, uh, and bring a lot of followers down with them because they are not grounded in the truth of Scripture. Second John 1, 7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. John is telling us we must be warned. We must be warned against their subtle attack. But they do not belong with us, because if they had belonged with us, then they would have remained. But because they have left, they are not really of us. Now, <clears throat> when I'm talking about this, the, the, maybe the misunderstanding that could pop up in our minds is, all right, anybody who leaves our church is an antichrist. <laughs> Obviously, that's not what John's saying. This is not a person who leaves a specific local church body. This is a person who leaves the faith, who rejects the faith, who completely turns away from the things of God. And that's why he says in chapter 4, in verse 5, he says, They are from the world. Therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. Speaking of the deceivers, these evil spirits. They go back to where they're really from. They are really from the world. It's not that they've found a problem within a local assembly and they've moved to another local assembly where they can worship better. That's not what John is referring to. He's referring to people who have completely left the faith and gone back into the world from which they came. Those people can be referred to as the Antichrist. And so when he talks about remaining, he's basically talking about the idea of faithfulness. Faithfulness, we could say, to the faith. And so because they don't remain, they're showing their unfaithfulness to the truth and to the faith itself. And they depart and they abandon the faith. They leave. They arise from within the church but ultimately, they depart from it. They depart from true fellowship, and they lead people out with them. And so they were never really born again. They never really had a true understanding of the scriptures. They never really understood the gospel. They never embraced the gospel. These are unbelievers at the very core. And so that's why John, throughout this book, talks about the the evidence of true Christianity as being what? Endurance. He's talking about continuing in love. 
continuing in the truth from what you've had from the beginning. You, you recognize those words? What you have had from the beginning, make sure that it remains in you. That is how you can tell if you're a true believer. One of the ways in which you can tell you're a true believer. Those who depart really were never of Christ. They were simply disguising themselves as apostles of Christ or people who, who embraced the truth but really were not of the truth. Satan is trying to remove you from the relationship that you have with God. He's trying to draw you away. He wants you to disobey God. He wants you to remove your eyes from the truth that he has given us in the scriptures. He wants you to, to, to distrust God. To have a lack of trust in God. Because can he really be believed? It just happens. It, the way that he attacks us is with just a, normally just a simple question. A little bit of doubt that creeps into the truth that we know. And so he will do whatever it takes to remove God as priority in our lives, even Scripture. And, he'll, and if we don't have a good understanding of the Scriptures, we can be deceived easily. We can be a fool when it comes to Satan's attack. And so our defense, John is telling us, our counterattack must be sourced in the Word of God as the Spirit makes it clear to us. And because Satan uses scripture as part of his attack, we must understand and know what the Bible says. And that's why it's important to constantly be saturating our minds with the truth of scripture. Sometimes it's helpful just to read through the scripture to see what God has said. Other times it's helpful to study the scripture, get into it and find out what it means. Because Satan will use even scripture to turn you from the faith, to try to turn you from the faith. So not only should we understand what the Bible says, but we should understand what the Bible means. <clears throat> and this is something that the Holy Spirit will help us as we, study, as we study it on our own and in our church. And that is why I would suggest to you that it's so critical to be constantly feeding on the word of God. It's not enough, I will say, it, it's not enough to just simply come on Sunday and Wednesday and receive a meal from the Word of God. It's not enough. You must be in the Word of God every day. Personally, it should be at the source and the center of your life. But not only personally, but in your family. It should be the center of your family time. Your family should recognize that the Word of God is important. And so it should be central to your family as well. And then obviously, our goal as a church is to make it central here as well. In, in our singing, what we say should be in keeping with the truth of God's Word. What, what is preached should be in keeping with what God said. And what God means. In our fellowship, it should be in keeping with the truth of the scripture. And the way in which we, we 
unleash really the power of the word is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because Satan, Peter says, that we prowls around, he says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Have you ever seen a lion that's ready to pounce? How do they attack their prey usually? How do they, they hunt their prey? Does he kind of raise his hands and say, hey, I'm over here. Look at how big my teeth are. No, he gets down really low, real quiet. You think he's not going to do anything. And then what? When you're most vulnerable, he pounces. Don't let your guard down. Satan is ready to pounce. And he will take that, that little bit of doubt. He will take that little bit of misunderstanding that you have about Scripture and try to get you to turn away from God, to turn your face away from God and reject His truth. Sometimes it's so subtle, but that's why we have to be on the defensive. We have to have the Word of God central in our lives. Let's pray and ask God's help as we do this. Lord, we recognize that this battle is not our own. We recognize that we do not fight against flesh and blood. We don't bring out swords and, and spears and real shields, but we fight against the spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. And we understand that Satan and his deceivers are constantly bombarding us with false teaching and sometimes for us it's so easy to embrace those things and we are ashamed that we don't know the scriptures as well as we should but we pray that you would help us as we endeavor to saturate our minds and our lives with the scriptures so that your spirit can work through us help us not to suppress the power that you have promised in our lives Help us to do so by giving our attention and our focus to the word of God in every aspect of our lives. For we pray it in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.